What's new listeners, I'm Archer Howell, the host of Two Cents Critic. If you want to move for reviews of books, movies, and TV shows, then join in. Today, we are reviewing and recapping the 2011 meta-horror comedy movie The Cabin in the Woods. And hanging out with us for that is Robert Stewart, or Stu, host of the comic book media and adaptations podcast Stu World Order, as well as the blog SWOProductions.com. Say hello, Stu. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And I want to thank you for, you know, coming on to the show. And I would actually already recorded an episode for your show, but it hasn't dropped yet. But <laughs> No, my my show is uh, very planned out in advance. So, yeah, that tends to be how it works sometimes, unfortunately. Yes. And is it okay? Do you want to say what the movie is, what we covered on your show? Do you want to say it? Yeah, um, or? it uh... Nah, it's all right. We'll save it. We'll save it for your fans. We'll we'll okay. let them have a taste of it whenever it comes out. Okay. <gasps> yeah, man, this, that was a fun time, but now it's great to have you on my show. And again, we have it in the woods. That is what we're covering today. Before I get into our general thoughts and feelings on the movie, I'll offer up some trivia about it first and say that this was directed by Drew Goddard and his feature directorial debut. And quite notable, actually, because uh, I watched his other movies that he directed, Bad Times at the El Royale, recently, in order to, to do a, a guest spot on the podcast, Men Who Like Men Who Like Movies. And that was a really fun time, and a great movie as well. I've actually never seen that, so I'll take that under advisement, and I'll see if I can find it streaming somewhere and watch it. I remember Ooh. the commercials for it. That's the one where it's like the the hotel straddles two state lines. Yes, Is yes. That, okay. Yes. Yeah, I remember the commercials for it. I never got around to seeing it, but it looked good. So I'll have to I'll have to find it somewhere and take a look at it now. It's very good. Yeah, and, and I even uh, I even said this on the guest spot over on the, on the podcast. I was like, this feels like a like a throwback almost to something you've seen in the nineties or two thousands, like a, a crimes thriller maybe kind of like some tarantino flavor in it okay yeah it, it's uh, quite good quite good and drew goddard as director and also written by goddard and joss whedon as well and they had previously worked together on buffy and angel and they penned the script in just three days which was like oof, that's what i've heard i've heard they pumped this out pretty quickly which given how creative it is is crazy to me like i, I couldn't I couldn't write anything nearly this good in three days. And I yeah, know, it would take I know Joss Whedon is problematic and we don't like talking about him as much nowadays because of the stuff we found out about him, but yeah, he's talented. I mean, it's, he's a scumbag, but he's talented. <laughs> I know. I, I was going to mention, I was going to be like, oh yeah, Joss Whedon. I was just going to you know, be like, hey, you know, he's done all of this, all of this media that has had such a huge influence. Even just Buffy itself, like that has had such a huge cultural influence. And of course, he has also done stuff with the MCU as well. You know, the Avengers, obviously. And it's just like, oh, but you're also such a big old creep. <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah, oh. unfortunately, yeah. yeah. And I should also mention a few of Goddard's other credits as well, because it's not just movies that he's done. He's also done a lot of TV, TV work with writing episodes for Buffy, Angel, Alias, and Lost, and also creating the Netflix series, uh, oh, Netflix then jumped over to Disney Plus, uh, Daredevil, as well, and directing several episodes of The Good Place, and there's a lot of TV work there, and even going over the movies, he also wrote Cloverfield, 
World War Z, and The Martian, which I still need to watch, by the way, The Martian, on my watch list. The book is very good, though. Those are... I mean, this movie, World War Z, that makes a lot of sense. But then The Martian, that seems like kind of out of left field compared to everything else he's had his hand in. That's a little different. That's a little bit more dramatic and, and heavy than anything else that you've mentioned there. So I didn't know no. he had anything to do with that. I didn't know he directed episodes of The Good Place either. But that warms my heart because I, I love The Good Place and I love this movie. Oh, so me too. Spoiling that right away. I, oh, yeah. I, I adore this movie. I've seen this movie like seven or eight times now and uh to know that he also did the good place makes me happy oh or at me least too some of the good place yeah it's a good place definitely as a one of my all-time favorite shows so mm -hmm. gotta see that and as part of his uh, his credits and the cabin of the woods it grossed 42.1 million dollars in the u.s and then it got a worldwide total of 66.5 million dollars against a budget of 30 million mm. So depending how much they spent on advertising, they might yeah. have come around even, maybe. Yeah. I think that's always, that's, that's always an interesting thing. It's funny, I was actually talking about this recently on a, another podcast where it's like, we were talking about the like, box office profits and how sometimes like, these cult, cult classics or even just you know, movies that we regard as legendary now, they sometimes don't... They, they don't show that at the box office when they initially came out. Like, Shawshank Redemption, I didn't know this, but I learned that, oh, that was a flop at the box office. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. Sometimes, eh, what do you know? People, sometimes you don't hear about things. They don't have really good word of mouth. You don't find out about them until after they've been released on streaming or video services or, you know, back in the day, DVD or Blu-ray. Yeah, I think this was a movie that didn't have a ton of advertising, and... I remember being interested in it. I must have seen trailers for it with something. And you could tell, like, boy, it's a slasher, but there's something else going on there. But the, I don't think the trailers could give enough away to make it seem that interesting to people. You kind of had to get an early audience in and have them go out and tell people, like, holy crap, you got to see this movie. It's so much more than what you think it is. Yeah. Because if the trailers gave too much away, then, you know, you weren't going to enjoy the movie as much. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of Malignant as well, because the trailer for, you know, the promotion for Malignant made it look like a very standard horror movie. But then once you go in, then it's like, yeah. oh, shit, this is going in some <laughs> wild directions. Yeah, no, 100%. I remember, actually, we rented Malignant, and we watched it, and for the first half an hour of that movie we were watching it my wife the entire time is going this isn't the right movie this is what you rented you rented the wrong movie because <laughs> we'd seen commercials and like you said it's by james wan it just looks like another insidious or the conjuring yeah. you don't know that you're going into this giallo inspired movie and my wife was just like this isn't it yeah <laughs> how, how, what do you think about that movie about malignant because i enjoyed it a lot um, I respect it and I want, I really want it to influence more movies. I want more movies to come out and just take big swings, but I don't know that I liked it. Does that make hmm. sense? Like, I, I don't can... know that I, I could really get into like intentionally bad acting. I can get that. You had, I, I know good actors, but they were like intentionally kind of acting poorly. Yeah. Like they were in a C grade movie and I don't know how I felt about that, but boy, yeah. like, when it came out, that's what I said. Is like I want more movies like this to come out and just just have the cojones to take a big swing and go for the fences. 
Definitely, because, and I understand that, yes, Malignant is definitely a polarizing movie. Actually, one of my, one of my friends, uh, Jared, who I've actually had on the show before, he does not care for the movie. In fact, he fell asleep. He, oh. he, he was like, oh, this movie bores me, and me and other friends were like, how can it bore you? Like, I can understand yeah. you don't like it, but how can it bore you into sleeping? Yeah, that's, I agree with that. Like, I could see coming out of it and saying that was stupid, I didn't like it, but to fall asleep during it is crazy. <laughs> I know, that I know. But not boring. Hopefully, hopefully someday he, you know, tries to watch it again. Hopefully. <laughs> <sighs> but to get back to the cabin in the woods, uh, let's just now offer up our general non-spoilery thoughts and feelings on the movie. So, Stu... What do you think? I mean, I, I mean, you've already, you know, said a bit of it, so. Yeah, I've already kind of laid that egg here, but I really enjoy it. I, I'm a big horror fan to begin with, and one of my favorite sub-genres in all of filmmaking is the horror comedy. If you can successfully blend horror and comedy, you've got me, because I think it's brilliant whenever movies are able to do this. And I think this is one of the best ones ever made. It's it's pretty 50-50 in the horror and the comedy department. It blends them together really well. And you've got characters that are likable. You've got this story that takes some wild turns. And for the first two acts, essentially, you've got two congruent stories before they kind of come together and coalesce in the third act. But for the first two acts, you're trying to figure out what is going on and why this one story has anything to do with this other story but the ride is phenomenal you get to the end and all the reveals you get are are fantastic and you get to the end and this this movie about five college kids trying to survive a threat coming at them in the woods just has so much bigger of a scope than you think it's going to and oh it knocked my socks off my wife my wife also likes movies, but she's not like me. Like, if she sees a good movie in theaters, she'll wait until it comes out to see it again. Whereas, like, I'll go to the theaters two or three times to see a movie. This is one of only two movies in, like, the 13, 14 years I've known my wife that she saw twice in theaters. So even she oh. really took this. Yeah. <gasps> Wow, that, yeah, that's that's great, that's great, and I'm, you know, glad to hear your love for the movie, and because I also still enjoyed quite a bit, this was a rewatch for me, my second time watching this total, and I loved it the first time, still love it the second time, just, as you were saying, so the whole ride just, just pulls me into the twists and turns, and how it is, you know, that it does have the, the comedy, it gets me laughing, but it also does have the true horror. And yes, likable characters, as you said. Like these are interesting characters, and the way that this movie is able to, you know, do some trope subversions. And uh, even though I will, I do have some little criticisms to make. I do think that there are certain ways that certain characters could have been fleshed out. I think particularly the a couple of the women characters could have been fleshed out. The nuance, the have been a bit, a bit more nuanced, and I'll, I'll offer up why I have certain criticisms when we get into the plot breakdown. But still, like, you know, this is like a... I feel like in general, like, when I look at horror, I feel like this crew, like, the, of college friends we follow, is one of the more memorable uh, college, like, you know, just, uh, like, friend groups I've seen in horror movies when yeah. they're fighting back against the monsters or the, the creatures or killers. Yeah, yeah I, I think the characters are a ton of fun in this movie, and 
it's funny that this movie was filmed in what 2009 but it wasn't released until two or three years later and this movie is the reason we have chris hemsworth as thor in the mcu because (laughs) he got cast in this movie and like we mentioned joss whedon worked on this movie and he saw chris hemsworth in this and all the work he was doing behind the scenes and he was like i gotta get this guy in the avengers so he called up you know, I don't think Feige was in charge of the MCU back in the day. I think it was Ike Perlmutter, but he probably called Perlmutter up and was like, hey, I got this guy. You have to cast him as Thor because he he looks like a god and he's a brilliant actor. <gasps> this know. movie's the reason we got Hemsworth. And, you know, I'm here for that. He's been oh, yeah. phenomenal as Thor. Absolutely. Just, yeah, great to see Chris Hemsworth here in this role. And, and also, it's also funny that he's in this Drew, Drew Goddard movie, and then he's also in the other Drew Goddard movie, Bad Times of the Old Royale. So, okay. great to see that. In general, like, I, want, I do want Drew Goddard to direct more movies, because it's like his filmography is only made up of The Cabin in the Woods and then Bad Times, which I'm not complaining at all. Like, that's a strong filmography to have. But also, like, directing, directing-wise, specifically. I was going to say, do you remember earlier this year the movie that came out, Megan? Megan, yes, yes. I, I, Megan, I, I enjoyed that. Megan is the second movie by a director. His first movie I love, it's called Housebound. And that came out in 2014, so it was nine years in between that guy directing movies. Oh, Housebound. I faintly recall looking that up, because I, I, I remember like looking up the filmographies, and I was like, oh, Housebound, okay, that's the other movie. Yes, that is another horror comedy. It's a New Zealand movie. Oh. But, oh, it's so good. If you get a chance to watch that, definitely check that out. I'll check out Bad Times at the El Royale. You see if you can find uh, Housebound. Okay, but that's okay. another movie. It's okay. by a director who, like, make more movies, guy. Don't wait 10 years in between your movies. <laughs> wow, okay. I'm glad to hear this recommendation. Definitely keep it in mind, you know. <laughs> uh, and, uh... And just, yeah, the way the plot progresses in this movie, the way it builds up to the third act. And it's funny because I remember watching this last year. And at this point last year, because it's actually been almost a year since I first saw this. I remember I saw this. I, I double-checked out the box, and I saw this back in September 2022. So it was like, oh, almost a year. And at that time, I wasn't as deep into you know, watching movies as I am now. I was still trying to explore movies, and especially horror. So it was funny watching this last year, again, as someone who hasn't explored too much horror. And I still enjoyed it a lot, still enjoyed it quite a bit. But now I feel like as someone who has taken a bigger dive into horror, I can appreciate what this movie is doing doing more with adding some, you know, some fleshed out details to the characters, you know, kind of also... It's sending out its admiration for horror, but also criticizing parts of it that are frustrating, like torture porn kind of stuff, and sort of contrived decisions that we often see characters make in horror movies. And I think it was all handled, you know, quite cleverly. It doesn't feel annoying. I feel like sometimes this kind of meta stuff can come off as pretentious. You know, it's irritating. But I feel like it's all smoothly handled here. And all in all, just a, a really enjoyable ride, you know. And, and also, really quick to watch. Like, I, for some reason, when I was watching, when I was re-watching this and taking my notes, I was like, wait, this is a really quick movie to consume, <laughs> which is great. Yeah, it fits a lot into just over an hour and a half. I mean, I actually, 
I almost feel the opposite, but in a good way, because it feels like there's so much in this movie, it's hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that it's just over an hour and a half, because it feels like a two-hour movie with how much they put in there, but it's it's just so dense, and every moment is so full of either characterization or humor or horror that you almost don't have a chance to breathe because it's just stuff happens, stuff happens the entire way through to the end. There's really no lull. There's no point in the movie where like nothing interesting is happening. So, I mean, it's, it's just all densely packed in there in a really short running time. Yes. Yes. Well, I feel like we've been offering up our general thoughts and feelings now on the movie. So let's move on to the wind up score. This is a score where each of us gets to, uh, you know, give a score that ranges from 0 to 100 to express our, our feelings on the movie. So, Stu, what is your wind-up score? Uh, I'm trying to decide how high I can go on this, because this is in my 10 favorite movies of all time. So it's got to be high. Like, I have my list on Letterboxd of my favorite movies ever, and this is in the top 10. I've got to go, like... This is a 96. It's a, it's a 96. I think it's just yeah. over 95. Like, if, if we did smaller numbers, I would give it a 10 out of 10. But at 96, it would round up to 100. Uh, it's, it's just so smart, and it's so funny. And the aspects of it that are straight horror, you can tell they've really studied horror, and they're really just students of the genre of horror, and they pull it off so well. And the the undead redneck torture family are, are really <laughs> creepy monsters and the, the practical effects on them look really good. So yes. yeah, it's a 96 for me. That sounds appropriate. That sounds appropriate. And yeah, practical effects, forgot to mention that, that's also, that's also excellent. And the gore, just yeah, love all of that. It's weird because there's so many good practical effects in this movie, and yet there's a scene where like a vial of blood goes pouring down something and because everything else is such good practical effects, that blood is such bad CGI. <laughs> it sticks out. Like, yeah. Why do they think that everything else in this movie has looked so good, and then they have this weird CGI blood? <laughs> True, yeah, that does stick out a bit more. But, okay, so your wind-up score, you've offered it, and now my wind-up score, I'm going to go with 90 out of 100. Again, I, you know, lots of love for this movie, and even if you check another box, like, you know, I rated it 4.5 out of 5 stars, and click the heart. <laughs> the precious heart. Gotta let the movie know when you like it. Yes. <laughs> uh, this is a movie that often, I think often when, uh, when people are asking for horror recommendations, I do, you know, try to be like, hey, you know, I'll offer up a few movies, and throw this one in there, definitely worth checking out, and I'm glad that I'm no, still loving it on this rewatch, all the little little details. And uh, before we move on into plot breakdown, I should add that not only did Goddard write Cloverfield, but he also served as the as an executive producer for the sequel, Ten Cloverfield Lane and Cloverfield Paradox. I can vouch for Ten Cloverfield Lane as being quite good. I can't say about the Cloverfield Paradox, having not seen it, but I've heard it's not really all that good. Yeah, I've heard bad things about Paradox, but I've never seen it either. And, alright, now we can move on to plot breakdown. So, listeners, if you haven't seen the movie yet, uh, you should probably pause the podcast, you know, go check it out. It's, you know, fantastic, worth seeing. But, if you have seen it already, or you haven't, but you're okay with spoilers, then you can stay right here. And, alright, 
So, uh, we get the opening credits that consist of just, you know, like, the blood just dripping down and, uh, these, like, temple carvings, temple drawings and such. And then, but the opening credits are very quick, though. Like, because then we just cut right away to Steve Hadley and Richard Citizen, who are these, like, two engineers working at this, what looks like a mundane office building, this underground facility. And the actors, by the way, Bradley Woodford plays Hadley, and Richard Jenkins plays Citizen. And they're such a great pair together. I really love the, the comedy they have. What do you think? Oh, yeah, no, they're perfect together. I was actually going to ask you, this is some trivia I should have looked up and I didn't. Have they been in anything else together? Because they have really quick chemistry between the two of them, and mm. they play off each other so well that if they had ever been in anything else, I would really like to have seen it. I know I've seen Richard Jenkins in a bunch of things. He yeah. doesn't always play comedy roles, but when he does, he's funny. And Bradley Whitfield, obviously, from... Uh, Oh, the presidential movie, or the TV show. What was that? With uh, Martin Sheen. Oh, the West Wing. West Wing. Yes, the West Wing. He's in that. He's really excellent in that. Yeah, Whitford and Jenkins, they were just in the cabin in the woods. Nothing else, which is damn. (gasps) But yeah, they do. Hollywood, get, uh, whenever this strike is over, get these two back in a movie together. (gasps) Yes, definitely. And it's, it's also funny because here's the thing, I've also seen Get Out. So it's funny watching Bradley Whitford there, and he's still actually, he's still pretty charming, but I feel like in, in Get Out, he's much more overtly eerie in that movie. Yeah. (gasps) But yeah, here there's just, it's funny, like, you know, obviously you find out this whole facility is like, oh, they're doing, they're totaling all of these, these rituals all over the world to be like, it's like horror movie-esque rituals to send in the monsters to have, you know, people fight against, and then eventually the monsters will kill them. But it's like, everything is still so mundane, and I did like that, that atmosphere. It's just like, oh, this regular old office setting. Yeah. Yeah, they're just kind of walking around, they're getting their coffee, and at the beginning they're talking about how uh, the Heedley's wife closed all their cabinets so in case they have a baby, uh, the baby won't be able to walk around and open the cabinets. Which, I've seen this movie so many times and I, it never dawned on me until now, but the uh, the almost symmetry of this movie, of how the movie opens talking about birth, and, you know, kind of, you know, rebirth and life and everything. And then the oh. movie obviously ends with the death of everybody. Oh. Okay. So it that ended is... very well with, you know, life and then death at the end. Okay. That is a nice little detail that I did not notice. Okay. Oh, like I said, it took me seven or eight watches to catch that for the first time. I just caught it last night and today when I broke it up into two watches. I just caught it this time. Okay. See? All the little details. Little hidden in this movie. And then we've got uh, Wendy, who is a technician working here at the lab. She comes in and she's all worried about Stockholm being unsuccessful, one of the rituals there, because now only Japan and the US are left. And they mentioned how, like, this this office hasn't had a glitch since 98. And so now she's all worried about that. But Citizen and, and Hadley, they're just, you know, not too concerned. They're just like, eh, you know, whatever. We'll keep things running along, running along smoothly. Yeah, like you said, this is very low-key, and you end up getting a sense of how important everything is and how dire the circumstances of their jobs are. But at the beginning, yeah, it's just like two guys at an office that are just worried about getting a report done, it might as well be. Because, yeah, they're just like, yeah, it's fine, we got it. And if we don't, Japan will take care of it. Japan always gets the job done. 
<laughs> and they even have a little cart, this little cart that they're driving around in, and Hadley is like, Hadley to, to Citizen is like, are you even listening to me? <laughs> and then we get to the whole title of jump scare, it's just like the cabin in the woods and the screaming, which that's gen genuinely got a jolt out of me the first time around. Second time yeah. around, not as big of a jolt like I expected it, but still, it's like, oh, still very sudden. <laughs> Yeah, it's a really good title card. It comes in at that moment right there when you're really not expecting it. And it just, like you said, it has the sound behind it and everything. Yeah. And that's why I would be fascinated to see, like, what would it be like to even just to, to, to just jump into this without even watching a trailer? You know, I, I feel like especially if you didn't know if it, like, what if you just thought it was a straight-up horror movie? And maybe you just watch the beginning and you'd be like, what's happening here? That would show you off even more. Like I said, I, I remember seeing it in theaters and the trailers kind of gave away just, just enough. Just to enough. Know it's more than just a slasher movie. But even then watching this movie, I remember just being like, what is, what are these two characters? I know. And then we cut to the five college friends are following as they're preparing for the trip to a cabin supposedly owned by Kurt's cousin in the woods. And so we've got, and you know, we've got Kurt, who is played by Chris Hemsworth, and it's funny how he looks like your typical jock, but he's actually quite veiny. And there's even like one moment when he's helping, when he's uh, helping uh, Dana out, one of the one of the college fans with uh, some schoolwork advice. Yeah, they mention later in the movie that he's a sociology major and he has a full academic scholarship, but. It's subversion again, and it's one of the first times you really get subversion in this movie because that's not what you think of when you see Chris Hemsworth. Not that it's not true. I'm sure Chris Hemsworth in real life is a very intelligent man. Yeah. But you look at Chris Hemsworth, and that's probably like the sixth tribute you're going to give to him. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 yeah, like the stereotype, like, like this, yeah. uh, you know, big old muscly guy, you know. Especially with like the buzz cut he has in this movie, it yeah. just makes him even more like just an athlete kind of jock character. Yes. And then we have also uh, Dana, who is played by Kristen Connolly, who and and her character was apparently in a student-teacher relationship, and she was like, "Oh, I know, what, I knew what I was getting into," but it's like. And see, this is one of the things I wish could have been fleshed out just a little more because it's like we just drop this detail in, but we don't return to it later on in the movie. And I just wish that little detail could have been fleshed out just a little more. You're right. It's one of those things where, like, I think they put details like that in this movie as kind of red herrings. And this may be bias on my part because this is a movie I like. Maybe I'm excusing things or, or looking for information that isn't there, but... I looked at that as something where they're kind of trying to lead you into thinking something that isn't going to happen. Like maybe you'll start thinking like, oh, this guy, this teacher is going to be behind these things. Maybe he's going to be working with those people in the office we saw earlier on. But no, it's a nothing detail. It just kind of comes and goes. So if you're not looking for things like that, if you're not looking for like, oh, why did they do that? It probably is just like a ah, they threw it in there to give her character a little bit of depth, but it wasn't a detail they followed up on. Mm, yeah, again, just you know, which it could have been you know yeah. just a little more. Yeah, and then uh, by the way, I should also state these characters are supposed to fit into the different stereotypes as well. So Dana is the like a horror movie stereotype. So there's Dana, she's supposed to be the virgin. And then Kurt is the athlete, and then we have Holden, who's played by uh, by Jesse Williams, 
who is the scholar, and and then the horror stereotype is yours, and then we have the fool, who is Marty, and so those are all like the different stereotypes that are supposed to fulfill for these rituals to you know entertain the ancient ones, as we'll learn later. Yeah, it's on. like whenever you watch an old school slasher movie. And you see all these characters that seems like such disparate elements, and you always kind of wonder, like, why are these people friends? <laughs> because in horror movies, that tends to be <gasps> the trope. See, that's the thing. Like, they would associate together, but they're together. Well, see, that's the thing, because I feel like in this movie, it does make it feel like, it does make it feel convincing that these characters would be friends. Like, I just feel like there's some, there's some good chemistry, just the way they talk together, just, you know, when you're, you know, when you're watching them all chat together. It just feels like it feels like okay, sure, you know, they do have different personalities, but I can see them all hanging out together, going off on a trip, and so it's funny how Marty, so he's like he's a stoner, and, and when he arrives, he's got like this tall bong that transforms <laughs> into a, a regular looking thermos. Yeah, I get a kick out of that. That's a funny introduction for him, and he's talking about why cops will never pull over somebody just openly smoking a bong in their car. Yep. <laughs> And it's funny because he, so he's played by uh, Fran Kranz. And it's funny because I know actually uh, first saw him as playing like this also kind of like a stoner-esque guy in the second uh, Wimpy Kid movie, Diary of Wimpy Kid, Roger Rules. Oh, okay. I, I remember of it. Yeah. Yeah. Just, so it's funny how like the two characters, it's like, oh, kind of similar here, kind of similar. I have a, a trivia fact I can throw in about him is the reason, I mean, he's a stoner character, so they dress him up like a stoner character, but they said the reason, like, he's wearing a hoodie and everything is they said, like, take any clothes off of him, and he's apparently as jacked as Chris Hemsworth. Oh! Like, they said, like, they said he's a jacked guy. Like, he's in really good shape. They really had to, like, cover him up in clothes so he could play this, like, wormy little stoner character and still have Chris Hemsworth appear to be the jock of the team. Well, damn, well, damn. <laughs> <gasps> oh. And then, yeah, and then George, she's played by Anne Hutchison. And then Holden is played by Jesse Williams. It's funny, I think the only other thing I've seen Jesse Williams in was in the Netflix rom-com Your Place of Mine with Reese Witherspoon and Ashton Kutcher. <gasps> oh, he's from, um, not that I watched a ton of it, but my wife did. He's from Grey's Anatomy. Like, he was in several seasons oh. of that. Okay, yeah, Grey's Anatomy, okay. There's a video game I played that he did, like, the the motion capture and the image for the character in the game. It's called oh. Detroit Become Human. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that, yep, yep. Yeah, he's one of the main characters in that game. I mean, he isn't, but I mean, like, the, the motion capture, motion. the character's clearly, like, all him. Interesting, interesting. So, they're all gathering up together, the group, and as they drive off into a van, uh-oh, someone is spying on them from the roof. Up above the building. Uh oh. <gasps> and then as they're driving along, there's a part there's a part where Marty says, like society needs to crumble. We're just too chicken shit to let it. You know, he doesn't care for all the surveillance, all the technology that's spying on human humanity. And it's funny because this scene actually stuck out to me more having, you know, watched already, but because the first time, I think I kind of forgot about this old scene of his, but then Rewatching it, I'm like, oh, okay, so that makes sense. You know, what's the ending? What what all comes down to? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. He has a lot of lines that they seem like just dumb stoner guy lines, but when you rewatch the movie knowing how it turns out for everybody, it's like, oh yeah, he's the guy who actually sees everything for what it is the whole time. Yeah, he's actually been quite perceptive, yes. <laughs> and then also, we get a quick cut back to the to the office, to the, you know, whore HQ, for some reason I haven't been in my notes. <laughs> Where we meet the, the head of security, Daniel Truman. And he's a part of his crew as, as, as an office where he's more, kind of like more skeptical, like more standoffish in regards to all of this stuff. And even yeah, later on in the movie. He's taking the job a lot more seriously than everyone else. Yes, even later on, uh, he doesn't participate in the betting that everyone else does. I will say, uh, I mean, we'll we'll get there whenever we get to the third act of the movie, but you talked about aspects of this movie that maybe need fleshed out a little bit on. He's a weird character for me because he's the character that if you take him out of the movie, nothing changes. So I don't know why he exists. Yeah. Like even when you get to the third act, you're kind of waiting for him to be relevant or do something and he just dies. Yeah. Fleshed out a little more, just give him some kind of a role that helps to be important somehow, whether he he's the one who killed off an important character or saved a character, just something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Something. Because I do think it's interesting. I, he's, like, he's like the only person in this whole office who does have that more, like, rounded perspective of, like, yeah, like, taking a job seriously. The only thing I can think of is he's a new character into the office. Like, he comes in, he's new in security, he's working there, like, he kind of serves as the reason for the characters around him to deliver exposition and explain things that we as the audience mm. need to know. Yeah. But there's no reason they would be saying if everybody in the room is up on everything. So he's kind of there as the new guy to be the reason that other characters have to explain something to him. Which is alright, but no. it feels like kind of lazy shorthand on the screenwriter's part. Well, it's kind of like... I. I feel like uh, Ariadne from Inception also falls into that same role. Okay. Although I do think Ariadne does get more to do. I feel like I feel like her character is left out more, and she even actually does like at the end in the third act, actually contributes an idea that helps to that really does help to like solve everything at the end of the movie. So yeah, similar roles, but she's definitely given a lot more to do. Yeah, and then we cut back to the to the van as it stops at this incredibly rundown gas station. That's being overseen by uh, Mordecai, the character's <laughs> called. I don't think they ever say his name, do they, in the movie? Because I had to look up the, the cast. Do they they say... do when he, uh, when he calls in to Sitterson and Heedley, they call him Mordecai. Right, right. Okay, okay. And he, he's played by character actor Tim Design, and he, he, just, he, just, uh, he definitely brings that, that energy of just like, oh, you look suspicious. <laughs> the character. <laughs> And uh, the Connors fans definitely are wary around him. And Marty jokes about him being around since the Civil War. Yeah, he says he's been there since the war. And he says, is that perchance the war with blue against gray? And he also does call the Jewels a whore. So like, just putting like a stereotype, a horror movie stereotype, even if it's out, out there. He also says, like, you got enough to get you there. Now getting back, that's your concern. Yeah, he is very much, if you've ever seen the first couple Friday the 13th movies, he's the crazy Ralph character of this movie. He's the, okay. the weird, skeevy old man who's just there to tell you, like, oh, you're gonna die if you stay here. And he's he's less weird than Ralph and more harsh, but, I mean, that's the role he's serving. 
That's weird, interesting, okay, because I haven't, I haven't seen any Friday the 13th movies, but they should have, but I haven't, but interesting, okay. I don't know if, after having watched this movie, if you would appreciate the Friday the 13th movies more or less. You might appreciate them more because this movie is showing you what they're making fun of, but you might appreciate them less because, you know, you're getting the stripped down version of what this is making fun yeah. of. Someday, yeah, sometime I will have to, again, because I, I, you know, I, I said, you know, I've been diving into more horror, but there's still a lot of horror that I don't need to watch. Like, for example, Halloween. I've never seen any of the Halloween movies. Oh, like, you're I, breaking I, my heart here, not having seen Halloween or Friday the 13th movies. I know. But <laughs> I have seen every Scream movie. I can say that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And every Final Destination movie as well. Oh, well, see, I've... I've only seen one or two Final Destinations, so you're ahead of me on that one. Yeah, so good. Except for the fourth, except for the uh, fourth movie. The fourth movie is very bleh, but the other movies okay. are fun. I've heard the fifth one is really good, but obviously I haven't seen it. So. It, it is really good. Yeah. Do you, wait. Okay. Do, do you know? Like, do you have any spoilers for the fifth movie? No, I don't know anything that happens in it. No. Okay. Okay. That that's good. Try to keep it that way. Okay. Yeah. And then the van goes driving along some more. And this is when we get a beat where we see an eagle fly into some kind of force field, which, you know, setting, setting up for later. Yeah, yeah, it's like, pay attention to that force field, that'll come back. <laughs> and the group arrives at this cabin, which is, you know, rustic, to say the <laughs> least. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a pretty rundown cabin. It's the kind of place that, no matter how long I drove, if I drove up to that, I'm turning around. Yeah, yeah. And inside, they're checking the place out. There's a gory painting of people cutting up a goat in Holden's room. And when he takes it down, because obviously, like, I don't want to look at this. He takes it down. He finds a two-way mirror that allows him a view into Dana's room. And it's funny because Drew Goddard, uh, he really has a thing with two-way mirrors. Because this is also a thing in Bad Times at the Royale. <laughs> He's replaying his hits. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, something, yeah, something so fascinating about the the voyeurism of of this aspect. I'm like, if if Goddard were to direct a third movie, I'm like, would two way mirrors also be involved somehow? You gotta, you gotta have your two way mirror, man. What else I think is interesting is we talked about the outside of this cabin. It's run down. It looks like garbage. It doesn't look like a very good cabin. But you get inside and it's beautiful. <laughs> All the rooms inside are delightful. Like, I would stay inside that cabin inside. if I got inside, but it'd be tough for you to get me to walk inside from the outside view. Yes, that's good pointing that out because, yes, the inside is actually, yeah, quite warm. You know, it is like, oh, you know, this is comfy here. I'd love to, you know, sit down here maybe with a, a snifter brandy or <laughs> something like that. And, again, Holden gets a view into Dana's room, and... She starts to take off her blouse, and he's like, kind of like fighting himself, kind of like he wants to get a peek, but then eventually he calls her attention. You know, he's like, "Hey, stop it!" Alerts everyone to the mirror, and now everyone is like, "Oh, what is this? Like, what's going on here? What is the situation?" <laughs> and Dana is glad Holden is a decent guy. You know, hey, you're not creepy. You didn't try to pick at me too much, and he doesn't. He doesn't miss to feeling that internal struggle. Yeah, and she makes a she tries to flirt, but just makes a really stupid joke about Jules being pre med. So <laughs> and and we, kills the moment between them. Kills the moment, yes, because we I I forgot to mention Kurt and Jules are trying to set him up, set Holden up with Dana as well. And then so now 
Dana is the one who, for a moment, gets a peek at Holden and her room, as you know, as he's like taking take off his shirt and he's all, you know, he's got some, you know, his body, some muscles, but she puts the painting back up and then drapes a blanket over it so she doesn't have to see it. Again, understandable. Oh, yeah, definitely. I don't want to look at that either. No, no. I, I like how the transition we pulled out to the security feed, the way like it transitions. Pull out to the security feed, spying on the college friends, and we're back in this underground facility. And apparently, they've been using Azura's hair dye to dampen her cognition with some nasty chemicals. Yeah, I like the idea they tell you. At least they tell you with Jules and Marty what they've been doing to them to kind of get them prepared for everything here. They don't tell you what they've been doing to Dana, Kirk, or uh, Holden. Hmm, yes. That's, that's right. I don't... Because it doesn't... Like, does it feel like they did anything to Dana or Holden or or Kurt beforehand? I Kurt, you could possibly argue maybe they put something in the beer because he's drinking a lot of beer and that's whenever he seems to really fall into his yes. stereotypical trope. But yeah, it, Dana and Holden both seem relatively normal, but they're also just kind of buying everything that goes on for a while, even while Marty's telling them, like, no, this is weird. And they're just, like, okay with everything. So it seems like something has to be going on with them, but we're never told what it is. Interesting, interesting. And then Mordecai calls the lab to let them know the kids are at the cabin. And this is such a funny little gag when he starts going into, like, his biblical shit. And he's just, like, <laughs> cleanse the world of their ignorance and sin. And, and then I love how, like, he realizes, wait, am I a speakerphone? <laughs> and Hazy is just, like, checking him and thinking, no, 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 you're not, you're not a speakerphone anymore. And then he goes on, Mordecai is just, like, he goes on with his crap. And until he finds out, oh, wait, no, I am still a speakerphone, damn you! <laughs> <laughs> uh, and also, he also mentions that the fool, as in Marty, nearly ruined the whole plan. Again, he got the perception. Yeah. I, for I, I remembered he mentioned the whore. I forgot he actually called Marty the fool also. Yes. And it's a friend. They head out to the lake for a nice swim, having some fun there. And then also, we've got everyone at the lab putting their money in the bedding pool. Because basically, we've got all of these different... The setup is basically we have all of these different monsters that uh, the college friends could activate and so everyone is betting like on like who, okay who is the monster gonna be or is it a group of monsters who's gonna be but daniel as i said for isn't isn't betting and there's a there's a scene between him and, and wendy where she's like this is how they let off steam and then also uh Hadley says that the director doesn't care about this crap as long as the, as the victims follow all the horror rules like ignoring ignoring the harbinger as they say, mm -hmm. which is Mordecai, and making their own choices as to what monsters they'll fight off against, then the system works. And then we cut back to the cabin, where the friends are playing a game of truth or dare. And Marty dares Jules to make out what he thinks is a stuffed moose head, but it's actually <laughs> a wolf. And she really commits to the bit. Kind of cringy, but also like kind of charming, the way she commits to it so much. She does. She And you can tell, like, this is the... Uh... I guess the hair dye kind of dumbing her down, but she just goes yep. for it. Yeah, she she just goes for that wolf, and it's not something you would expect a pre med student to do. But no, no. and also even like even afterwards, she lets out a quiet thank you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a nice little touch. But also, it gets me thinking like, oh, how dusty is that wolf head? 
Hey, like I said, everything inside the cabin is surprisingly clean, so True. maybe it's fine. I don't know. True. Although she does, after she's done making out with it, she starts like picking at her mouth, like there's fur or <laughs> dust or something on her tongue. So, <laughs> and I remember on first watch, I remember thinking something might happen here, like it's a wolf head going to suddenly come to life. <laughs> but it didn't. But I thought that. Nope, it's just a fake wolf head or a stuffed wolf head, I guess. Then, right as Dana feels pressure to ask for a dare from the Jewel because Kurt is like, oh, you're chicken out from the dare and just pick a truth instead. Then a trapdoor pops open in the room, so the Jewel dares Dana to head down into the cellar. And they're like, oh, you can stay until morning. <laughs> but eventually, like, everyone, everyone ends up exploring this cellar, and there's like a, a conch shell that Kurt is blowing into and oh he also notices Wait, this he like, almost blows into it almost almost yes almost almost <laughs> otherwise Heatley would have gotten what he wanted the whole time yes the merman <laughs> which i think is one of me and my wife's favorite jokes from this movie is just the merman bit that he's obsessed with there being a merman <gasps> and he gets his wish in a way towards the end <laughs> yeah he does but not the way he wanted to nope nope and in general, everyone is like messing around with all of this stuff. Like, for example, uh, Kurt ends up finding this, this metallic ball, these little, kind of like these little blunt spikes all over it, or like, you know, little blunt protrusions all over it. That's like something that would come out of like a, a few centuries ago. And Holden. I'm wondering, because like, you don't seem to be a big horror guy, do you know what that's a reference to? Hellraiser. Now, that I do. Okay. Hellraiser. Okay. Yes, yes. Just making sure. Okay. Yeah. I, I, but I do need to watch Hellraiser. No. Uh, just the first two. <laughs> I, yes. I've, I've heard about the other movies, you know, but... Yeah, no, they, they fall off a cliff real fast, but the first two are good. <gasps> Holden, he also has, like, this music box he's playing with. Jules like, is playing with his necklace. Marty is examining a film reel. And then Dana is paging through the diary of Anna Patience Buckner from 1903. And with grisly shit that she's uh, writing about, about her, her abusive family, about her dad and his diary. And Marty, Marty is like the one who says, don't read the Latin. <laughs> I draw the line in the sand at reading the Latin. No, this whole scene in the basement is where you start really getting clues that Marty's the one who's not as affected by whatever's going on as everybody else. Because everybody else in the basement is immediately kind of entranced by everything down there. And Marty is just like, let's get out of here. Like, <gasps> we shouldn't be down here. I dare everyone to go back upstairs. <laughs> I know, and, and, and it reminds me, it, specifically the Latin stuff, you know what it makes me think of? It's a mummy. When it's oh, like, okay. when it's like, no, Evie, why are you reading the, <laughs> why are you reading the book? Don't read from it. Don't, don't bring Emotep back to life. <laughs> You know, it, it never dawned on me, but yeah, that's that's a reference to the mummy. I never picked up on that one, but yeah, that's that's where the reference for the reading the diary is. Yep. Or even uh, I feel like it might even be more of a direct reference to uh, Evil Dead as well. Oh, the Necronomicon, yeah. In general, I feel like that's the whole trope in general. It's like, oh, yeah, what just, is this? Just it's not even just a regular old book. It's like a very creepy looking book <laughs> that looks like it holds some dark magic in it. Yeah. Don't read the foreign language from the creepy book. That's never a good idea. 
<gasps> Especially if the cover has like creepy stuff, like if the cover is like just uh, old or mangled up, but does it look like it's made out of, out of leather? It's like a leather <laughs> cover. Put the leather book down. <laughs> but nope, they don't listen to Marty. Uh, Dana just reads the Latin. And we even hear this whisper. There's like a whisper that goes, read it. Read it out yeah. loud. And Dana goes ahead and reads it. And just activates the song of the five vi- corpses of the Buckner family outside. And now back in the lab. It's announced that maintenance won the bet. But we're also sharing the pot with Ronald the intern. Who also wanted to bet on zombie redneck torture families. <laughs> Yep. Oh yeah, that's right. One one of the employees that has bet on the zombie bed like torture family, but they have to specify no, it's different from the Buckners. Yeah. Well she bet on zombies yep. and he was like, Yes, you did bet on zombies, but this is zombie redneck torture family. Yep. <gasps> that's different. Yes. And then we get a little bit another little bit between Wendy and Daniel, where Wendy says everything here is like reminiscent of the old world and to talk about like magic, monsters, gods. And Daniel is like, you probably shouldn't get used to it. All this crap happening. Which, you know, they shouldn't. And, and then also, Hazley really wanted to see a merman, as we said before. So it's disappointed that Kurt didn't activate the conch. <laughs> and then we also see a little bit of the, of the ritual open in Japan. With a bunch of little girls who are contending with just... Basically, uh, like, it's a stringy-haired ghost girl, you see, in something like The Grudge, or The Ring, Shudder, yes. Dark Water, all of those. All those movies that came out in the early 2000s, yeah, from Japan, yep. yep. And then we cut back to the cabin, where uh, Jules and Kurt are definitely not acting like they're kind of, like, normal selves. Jules is being, like, very, like, drunkenly flirtatious, and, and, and Kurt is acting like an alpha male. As Marty puts it, and he's like caught calling Holden an egghead, and we're like, what's going on? And even Marty, Marty, he's like, Marty is like, puppeteers, are those puppeteers? And then Holden and Dana are getting kind of comfy on the couch together, and Holden says he can sort of read Latin. And then Kurt and Jules are venturing outside and getting horny. Meanwhile, the, the, the lab workers are all just watching them. In the meantime, on the security camera feeds. Trying to see if they get naked, yeah. And also messing with the environment, too. Like, the guy's like, oh, temperature control, the lighting. And Paisley and Citizen, they also specify, we gotta wait for the breasts. Because it's the old gods who want to see the nudity. Yeah. And I like, those are the moments I like where they're talking about the old gods, but they're really talking about us watching the movie. They're talking about, like, Oh yeah, the people who went to see the Friday the 13th movies back in the day, they wanted to see boobies in their movies, yep. so you gotta make them happy. Well, see, and, and then also that goes over into the torture porn side of things, mm-hmm. where I feel like this is basically the, the lab workers who want to see, like, oh, the monster's killing people and they're betting on it all. That also, again, speaks to the viewers who sees who see, like, you know, movies that fall into torture porn, like Saw or Hostel, and it it's like a criticism of that element and kind of like forces us to reflect on like why do we see these movies? Is it because like do we see it in order to vent our own anxieties, our own fears? Like watching all of the gore on screen does it vent our own emotions in that sense? And how good like how gratuitous does it really have to be? Yeah. 
and like what what do you think about about that like how do you feel about torture porn in general like how this criticizes that i i hated the torture porn genre of horror i thought it was the the worst decade for horror was the 2000s because it was all that torture porn stuff like you said hostile and all the saw sequels i i wasn't down for that i i really liked the 70s had great horrors the 80s had super fun slashers the 90s were fine and then the 2000s were all torture porny. And yeah, I think this movie does have some stuff to say about that. And that was not a genre I cared for at all. I think everything started getting better in the 2010s. But um, yeah, I think what they're talking about here is a lot of how these office workers who have done this every year or every so many years at least, and they've, they've put people through this, it's talking about how desensitized to the violence you get when you're watching these movies over and over and over every year, year in and year out, you're just desensitized to the point where we got to torture porn in the 2000s, which is hilarious because in the 1980s, movies kept getting cut back by the MPAA for being too violent. And then you got like these really neutered versions of slasher movies. And yet 20 years later, we'd be into the torture porn era where you're just like, this stuff never would have flown no. back in the 80s when the, the slasher directors talk about all the stuff the MPAA cut out of their movies. But we just got desensitized to it after so many years. Yeah. And that's what happened to the uh, the office workers here is they've just seen so much of it that, you know, it's not even really affecting them. Yeah. So I personally don't watch a lot of torture porn. I feel like in general, it's, like, it's, not my, it's not a go-to for me. I feel like the most I've consumed of it is through Saw, which I feel like I've seen probably, not every movie, but almost every movie, like, except for, I think, except for Jigsaw, Spiral, and then, and then the second Saw movie, which okay. I've seen other Saw movies, but I feel conflicted because I'm like, I can see why people would, like, you know, you know, enjoy watching the movies. I've got some friends who get a kick out of the movies and how, like, how ridiculous they can get. And it's like, they can get very ridiculous. And, like, all of the contrived plotting and, like, just how wild it can get. But I feel like the... I don't know. Again, it's just not my cup of tea. Although I do think the first Saw movie is actually pretty solid. I feel like that's actually the movie that doesn't... I feel like that's maybe the least torture plenty out of all of the movies. But the other movies, then it's like, okay, the violence definitely is extended. It's prolonged, you know, it's not like... Oh, and you're, you're a million percent right. The first Saw movie is a good movie. Yeah. Just unquestionably, it's a really good horror movie. And it does what the subsequent Saw movies wouldn't do, where sometimes when you think you're about to see something really intense, it cuts away and shows you people's reaction to it or shows you something else that's going on. It doesn't show you that much of the guy cutting his leg off. It flashes to the other guy in the room and you get his visceral reaction yeah. to what's going on. The other movies would just be like, screw it, we're showing you this guy cut his leg off. And it's yeah. just like, that's my thing is like, I don't know, people feel differently about this, but I don't watch horror to be grossed out. I watch horror because I think horror is fun. I don't watch it because like, I think showing realistic violence and gore is fun. I, I don't know. That's just not for me personally. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't. Uh, it, it depends because I have seen. I, I've seen. I've definitely seen some like some gory ass shit. I feel like maybe. I, I, I it's funny. I actually brought this up recently. This movie recently. I thought this movie up recently. Uh, I saw the devil, where I feel like that's one of the 
most uh, just like gory, like physically gory, but also like psychologically devastating movies I've seen. And I feel like I don't, I, I don't, see, I don't think I would classify that as worship porn, but it, it's still very violent. Oh yeah, it's I've I've heard of it, I've heard about it, but I haven't seen it. I've heard it's I've heard it's pretty gross. Yeah. I don't know that it would be for me. Yeah, probably not. But I don't know if I classify it as torture porn. Like it's a very specific yeah. kind of like torture porn. It's like it is extended. It is so long. It yeah. wants to shun you through the grinder, you know. And I don't know if like as, I, I don't know if as violent as I saw the devil get. I don't know if it serves that purpose specifically. But. Yeah, I agree with that. From what I've heard, yeah, it's it's not something I would call torture porn. It's just gore. Yeah, just gore. Again, it's, it's very psychological too. It's not just like visual, it's like psychological as well. It's like what, okay. how it deals with revenge and grief and trauma. Uh, but so now, Jules and Kurt, again, they're, you know, they're, they're getting horny, getting raunchy, but then, oh no! They get attacked by the Buckner zombies, and one of one of whom is armed with a bear trap on a chain. I love that weapon. I love that weapon so much. Like it's impractical, <laughs> but I just I, I want to see more of that in horror movies. I want to see bear trap on a chain. <laughs> yeah, it is like it is quite a weapon, quite a memorable weapon. And then oh no, they end up killing killing Jules, and Haley pulls a lever channeling down her blood underground and we kind of get a get a glimpse of the carving for her stereotypes and it fills up but not the full thing you know we wait for the full reveal later yeah you can't tell what it is it's just it's outlining something but you just see a real close-up of the top of it so you don't quite know what it is yet yes yes and then we go back to the cabin where marty is trying to relax reading a little nemo book (laughs) (laughs) and and then he, he's heard some noises, and he's going to be like, okay, I'm going out for a walk. And Dana and Holden are canoodling a bit. And I like how he's like, he isn't rushing her, trying to keep it slow. And Marty walks by and says, like, oh, you've got a husband, Bulge. <laughs> Which is from the book that they read, the, the, the diary of Anna Patience Buckner. She talks about uh, how her, her brothers, whenever they killed people, it gave them a husband's bulge. <laughs> oh, my God. So, so yeah, Mar- Marty's walking past them making out, and he goes, yeah, he's got a husband's bulge. Oh my god. So crudely humorous. <laughs> yes. And Marty goes outside. He's confused by the lack of stars in the sky. And then we can see something walking up towards him from, beh- walking up towards him from behind. And then Kurt bursts out from the side. He and Marty run back into the cabin, going past, going, going past the patients. The girl, the daughter of the family, who's missing an arm. And I was like, oh no, what's happening? And we, we learned Jules is dead. And then I, then I tried to uh, go out there to find her. But then, oh no, the huge zombie with a bear trap is at the door. And he tosses Jules' head into the cabin. <gasps> oh my god. Yeah, Dana asks what happens to, or what happened to Jules, and then he just shows up at the door and throws her head in her lap. Yep. Uh, and so now, like, they're shutting the door against the zombie. They're trying to figure out what to do. And Kurt says, no matter what happens, we have to stay together. But this is when Citizen uh, releases a chemical into the cabin that influences Kurt to be like, you know what? Let's split up. We need to cover more ground. And Holden agrees, but Marty is the one who's like, really? 
<laughs> yeah, again, just another clue that Marty's the one who's not affected by everything going on. <gasps> so now the fans head into rooms, but the lab locks up the doors, and now they're all trapped. And then Marty, Marty uh, is messing around, he knocks over a lamp. Because of that, he finds this little bug, and he's like, what is going on? See, the technology is spying on us. We think he's on a reality TV show at first. Yes, <laughs> reality TV show. And then Haley is about to order, like, get the get the swords in into the room. But Citizen is like, no, no, Judah Buckner to the rescue, <laughs> because Judah Judah Buckner breaks the window, pulls out Marty, and Marty does get a hit with his thermos bong. But then Judah takes him down and drags him away. I don't know. Stabs him in the back, too. <gasps> uh, it seems like it's the end of Marty because he took that yeah. stab to the back and yeah. gets pulled away. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you know, obviously he's spoiled for later, but I wasn't expecting him to come back. You know, I thought he was just dead. Yeah, I, I didn't see it coming either. And every time I watch this movie, I don't know how I didn't because when you rewatch the movie, it's so obvious that he's going to come back. Yeah. But the first time I watched it, I didn't really place it i think that's that's the rule because it's like if you don't see the body if they're not if they're not confirmed to be dead and it's like yeah. you know they could yeah. be alive still just like that's why you know even like the mc rule as well <laughs> oh yeah if you don't see the body they're definitely still alive in the mcu <gasps> definitely yes. so then Haley pulls the lever to drain what's apparently marty's blood into the into the, the, the wall climbing what if was, but I'm assuming that that's probably the zombie's blood, right? I don't know. I just assumed it was just like random blood they had that they they have vials of. I I don't know where it comes from. Oh, okay. Because here's the thing. I I saw that they what that they had like these channels, just, just like channels to drain the blood from the bodies themselves into into the carving. I thought that was that was how it was built up. Oh, maybe. I might have missed that. That's possible. Interesting, interesting. But then there's a major rumblings. And Haley is like, oh, they must be getting excited down there. But, and here's the thing, I was wondering, because again, I've seen the movie, I'm, I'm watching the movie a second time, I'm like, wait, is it rumbling because the gods know Marty is still alive? And they're like, yep. no, you need to kill him! <laughs> yeah, the gods realize, like, hey, you set that thing off early. And then so Dana gets attacked by Buckner, Holden is helping her out, breaking the two-way mirror, helping her escape. Then they find a trap door on the floor, and and they go down there, and this is a black room from Patience's diary, as Dana says. This is where the family tortured and killed their victims. And and then the the bear trap, the bear trap comes back in. It got it gets Holden right in the back. And but Dana is able to kill Kill the zombie with like this crowbar or hook instrument or something like that. Stab right through the eye. And then followed yeah. by grabbing up a knife and just stabbing just the zombie. Oh my god. Then, oh, there's a bit where Hadley is like, remember when you could just throw a gold into a volcano? And the citizen says, how old do you think I am? <laughs> <gasps> so then Kurt pops into the room. And they all flee outside. And Kurt's like, they got body. So we go to the van, and I like how as it starts up, the sound mixing combines the, the sound of the, of the engine starting up with a scream of that ghost girl from Japan. I like that little sound oh, mixing. Oh, yeah. Good catch. Yeah. Yes. And again, from Japan, as the students perform a ritual to contain her spirit and the happy frog. 
<laughs> the happy frog. I love that scene. I love that scene so much. And then Sitterson sits there and is cursing out these little Japanese schoolgirls. I know he's like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> because that's the thing is, like, they, depend, they were depending on Japan. They were like, oh, Japan, you know, Japan, you know, do efficient. They'll get the job done. But now it's like, oh, crap, it happened. Now it's down to the U.S. Yep. And also, like, the happy frog. It's just like a little comedic little thing. It's like, oh, contrast is all the whole. Oh, dear. <laughs> and also, they, they have zero fatalities as well in Japan. Yeah, so the, 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 the fake the ring monster girl didn't even kill any of them. Nope. And we, I like how he flips through a few other camera feeds. Like, we have one of those Aries showing. I couldn't tell. Is it like a. I kept wanting to call it a mix, a mix between a minotaur and a gorilla. Oh, yeah, there's like a big, like, King Kong looking thing with horns. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, that was such an interesting little creature. Uh huh. But yeah, other tests have failed, other mission wars, and now again, relying on the US to succeed. And Citizen is confused by how Marty has been so perceptive, despite having smoked weed that they saw they contaminated. And on top of that, there's no cave-in at the tunnel that Dana, Kurt, and Holden are driving toward. So they're working on that, the lab is working on that, and Citizen has, like, head down the electronics room, and it's like, there's a glitch, the tunnel should have blown up hours ago, but Citizen messes with the wires, blows up the tunnel, forcing the, the van to, like, back out, and now they're trapped. Oh no. That is a, if you think about it, having watched this movie more than once, that's a plot hole. That doesn't make a lot of sense because he points out that the tunnel should have been blown hours ago, right? Because yes. he says that specifically. Yes. But later on, you find out the reason the tunnel didn't blow is because Marty didn't actually die. And so the director interfered and, and set the glitch so that they couldn't blow the tunnel because she didn't want, for whatever reason, she didn't right. want things screwed up because Marty's not actually dead. But Marty didn't die hours ago, so that's still like kind of a, a, a plot hole where the amount of time ago the, the tunnel should have blown doesn't make sense. Huh. Okay. I did not notice that. Okay, but that is an interesting little plot hole. Hmm. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't ruin things, but it's like... No, it's, no, it doesn't. What's pointing out, though? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now there's three offense are trying to figure out how they can bypass the tunnel, because it's, it's set up so, like, there's, like, the tunnel that curves around this ravine, and the road is, like, going on either side of the ravine. So there's a way, like, how can we get across this ravine to the road on the other side? And Kurt's idea is to jump his motorcycle across the way. And he's confident about this. He's like, oh, I've done bigger jumps than this. And it doesn't work, unfortunately, because he crashes right into the force field. Into the force field, yeah. And I'm curious, what, what do you think, like, when you first saw this, did you remember the force field happening here? I did, actually. I, whenever he got the motorcycle out and started talking about jumping the bridge, or the, the gap there, I immediately was like, oh, he's going to hit the force field that we saw earlier. The first yeah. time I saw it, I picked up on that. Okay, see, here's the thing, because I completely forgot about the force field when I first saw this movie. I was just like, oh, okay, he'll just jump in. Like, I was kind of like, what's going to happen here? Something's going to happen here. But I didn't remember the force field, but then he crashed into it, and I'm like, oh, crap! <laughs> and by the way, we talked about CGI earlier. Did you, did you feel like his body looked kind of like a CGI flop as he's falling down? Oh. I've never watched it that closely, but probably, yeah. I talked about the blood not being that good, so I could see the, the falling body not being amazing either. Yeah. 
again, just like little little details. I think because it, because it stands out against how like well crafted the practical effects and the set design is. Like how a lot of it is like just real stuff. It's like it's not like you're watching an MCU movie where it's like everything is green screen. So yeah, like you said, inside of a, a warehouse. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, little CGI details do leap out at your eye. Yep. So Kurt is done for. And then Dana is like puppeteers, and she's you know calling back to Marty, saying the same thing earlier, and she's like Marty was right. <gasps> and now the letter gets pulled, drains blood into the Ashley carving in the underground chamber. So now Holden and Dana are back in the back in the van, trying to find a way out. And he's trying to reassure her, be like, hey, you know, we'll find a way out of this. Just stay calm. And right as he says, no matter what happens, we gotta stay. Oh, but then he gets cut off because a Buckner stabs him in his throat from behind. Yeah, with like a scythe or something. I don't know. Or, yeah, something like some kind of bladed sickle or something. Yeah, something like that. And this Buckner is right in the, in the van, in the vehicle. Yeah, and whenever they pan out a bit, there's nothing that would have obstructed her vision. Like there's no no wall or anything in the back of the Wrangler that would have stopped her from seeing that that guy was there. He's just standing there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. But... Maybe he was ducked down real low. I don't know. <laughs> <sighs> but yep. So now Holden is dead, and the and the van crashes into the lake, and Dana has to swim out, almost getting caught by the zombie. And now cutting back to the lab, Hadley, Citizen, and Wendy are drinking, and Daniel looks put off by all of this. Kind of like he's like, "Why are we celebrating? Even though even though Dana's still alive." But Hadley says. The virgin's death is optional as long as it's last. She just has to suffer. Yes, like they said, she did. <laughs> yep, she did, she did. And it's funny how he's like, I'm actually rooting for her. She's got so much heart. And then he, he talks a bit, but then he gets cuts himself off when the other lab workers come in with the alcohol. And he's like, tequila, my lady. <laughs> <gasps> but it's, it's such an interesting moment because it's like, it's like this guy is like, He's invested in this. Like, he, it seems like he wants Dana to survive this, and it's so weird. It's like, but you're also the one who's helping to put all of this in the gear as well. Yeah. And and again, like, what do you think about the morals of the lab workers here? Because supposedly the whole thing is, oh, we need to do this to please the ancient gods, and if we don't, then they will take over Earth, destroy humanity. And at the end, I mean, obviously, like, it, it was real. They weren't lying. Like, that is actually what happens. So it's like, what do you think about the morality here? <laughs> um, I don't know. I guess it would it would take a special kind of person to be able to do that. Like, I don't know if I'd be able to just sacrifice people for the sake of the greater good. I don't know if I could do it, but I'm sure there are people that could. So no, yeah, it's it. I don't know how you get into that field either, though. Like, this is obviously a big, huge secret. I don't know. I guess you work your way up through the FBI or something, and once you get like super mega top secret clearance, they're like, "All right, we can we can tell you about the giant evil gods that live underneath the earth now." Well, that, that, because they don't specify like how how is this facility built. You know, do like do governments know about it? They don't. They don't yeah. specify that. It leaves it all up for us to theorize, which I, I like that. I, I I don't need like all the background details, you know, but. Yeah, is the government sponsored? Is it some weird private thing where just this this company knows about it? Yeah, it's a good it's a good mystery to have. Yeah, and just it, it's it, I guess it's, it's always a question you can ask about like, any of these moral dilemmas. Was like 
you know, the, the end justifies the mean, you know, like, as it, you know, as it was to sacrifice a few people through these horrifying, these horrifying rituals in order to save all of humanity. It's like, it's that tough question, and I don't know, like, I don't know why it has a guts to be able to do something like that. I don't know. It's like, we mentioned the tr- uh, the the good place earlier, and this is like the trolley problem on an epic scale, yes. where it's like, could you kill personally five people to save literally everybody else on the planet? And it's like, I, you got to find the people who say yes to that question, and you can offer them this job. And you're not just killing people, like running up, running a trolley over them. It's like you're sent, you're creating monsters and sending yeah. them after the people, the poor victims. Yeah. Oh. Then we cut back to Dana as she clambers up onto the dock. But oh shit, it's a bear trap zombie. Almost gets her <laughs> head, and then he's strangling her. And it's unnerving to pull out from a security feed of that to the workers all partying. Partying with like fun music playing and they're drinking and flirting with each other, yeah. yeah. And you keep seeing the security feeds in the background of Dana just getting the crap beat out. I know. And see, that's the thing. Is like that's the thing. Going back to the morality of it all, it's not just like it's not just this facility where everyone is taking this seriously and they're dealing with like, hey, this is a big thing we're dealing. We're killing people. Based, we're, we're killing people. It's like they're being flippant about it too. That adds to the morality of the situation. You know. I think that goes back to what I talked about earlier with the desensitization. Like they've yeah. been through it so many times that you see the new security guard guy, like he's really affected by what's going on, but nobody else is because they've presumably been there for years. Yeah. See, see Daniel, how is he hired? Like again, like you know, how do you get that connection? <laughs> how do you get an intern for that? <laughs> yeah, Ronald the intern. Yeah. yeah. And Haley comments on how this would have been cooler as a merman. <laughs> and Dana, also Dana pukes also in the background too. We see her puking in, in, a, in a feed. Yeah, puking like a lot of blood. Yeah. And the red phone rings and Haley picks it up and he's alerted to the fact that someone aside from Dana is still alive. And we're like, hmm, who could that be? And then right as the zombie swings his beer trap, Marty shows up to catch it with his thermos bong saving the day. <laughs> I love that thermos bong. <laughs> and then Dana smacks the zombie in the head and falls into the lake. But then it does pop up, pop up above the water, you know, watching them as they're running away. And Dana and Marty run off and they go into the, the, the Buckner zombie grave. We pass a dismembered, yet still alive zombie that Marty fought with to travel. I, I'm assuming that's uh, Judah, Judah Buckner. Yes, yeah, I, I would imagine that's who it is. Yeah, the one who stabbed him and ran off with him, yeah. <gasps> they take a moment to, you know, stop and mourn her dead buddies, which is like, this is like a serious moment for them, I, and I appreciate it. It's just like, just stop a second and be like, hey, like, we've lost our friends here. This is serious. Yeah, no, they, they definitely take that moment and, and think about it. We're... It's hard, because, like, as a writer, should these characters be so tied up in this moment? Because, like, your blood would be pumping in this moment. It's hard to imagine actually slowing down. But at the same time, if they didn't recognize that their friends were dead, it, I don't know, it makes them less likable as protagonists. So it's a yeah. a tough balance to strike when you're writing this movie. But I think they do a good job with it. And it is a quick moment, too. It's, like, very fast. It's, like, a few seconds. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like they're spending a whole bunch of time, you know, focusing on this and it almost reminds me just a bit of like 
for some reason, it, it reminds me of moments like when you see superheroes show moments of weakness or show moments of at least getting tired, getting exa- exhausted. Like even, a, yeah. I think specifically of, of a, a Pietro, of Quicksilver and Age of Ultron, when he slows down for a bit to just like, catch his breath as he's running around, to just be like, hey, he can't run forever. He's got to take a yeah. breath. Yeah, definitely. So then Marty reveals his elevator that they can take, and there's like, oh, there's like maintenance overrides we can use to dive deeper into this mysterious place. And body parts from that zombie fall into the elevator, you know, just to, you know, set up for a bit later. And then it takes Dana and Marty down into the darkness, this elevator, and we find out there's this whole chamber where it says all of these other cells. With all of these other monsters just circulating around the whole chamber. How do you feel about this? Especially like on your first watch, how do you feel about about this? Oh, especially on the first watch, I think this is one of the best scenes in horror movie history. Because you're seeing all these tropes. Like, there's werewolf, there's a ghost, there's the little girl with a big mouth for a face, there's the Hellraiser yeah. imitator guys. Like... I, I genuinely think in the entirety of horror movie history, this is one of the best moments because you're seeing all these different tropes and all these different characters. And as a fan of horror movies, you're pointing at things and going like, oh, that's a callback to this or, oh, that's a reference to that. And you see characters that are clearly like the strangers from the movie, the strangers. And you're like, oh yeah, I remember that from a few years ago. Yep. So it's a ton of fun just seeing all these different references and, you know, in your head trying to figure out, like, oh, that's this, or this is that, all that kind of stuff. I know. And so and so that that goal uh, with, a, with a big mouse, like a big lamprey's mouse, that is uh-huh. a, a sugar plum fairy. And I, lo- I was looking this up, and apparently she would have been activated by the music box that Holden had been playing with. Right. It, that's the other fun thing is you see all these monsters and you try to think like what in the basement would have activated like any one of them. Yeah. It's like, yeah, she would have been activated by the, thi- the, the, the music box. The Hellraiser guys would have been activated by the, the little cube that whole, or, uh, uh, Kurt that was like had. a little ball, a little web. And, and yeah, the merman would have been activated by the conch shell. <laughs> and the sugar plum fairy, by the way, is one of my favorites here. Like it's funny because I feel like a lot of these, a lot of the monsters here, are clearly inspired by tropes, but I feel mm-hmm. like the Sugar Plum Fairy, like, I don't know if she fits into a specific trope, or even, like, a monster of many horror movie, unless I, unless I haven't seen maybe some obscure horror movie where something like that is featured, but is there something where you feel like Sugar Plum Fairy is based off of? No, there's nothing I knew that, you know, like, oh, that's for that's a reference to this movie. No, nothing ever struck me about her. Yeah, just, yeah I, feel, I feel like that's maybe a reason why the Sugar Plum Fairy stands out to me more. And, and then, uh, and then uh, so the Hellraiser guy uh, is, is Fornicus, Lord of Bondage and Pain. That's like the name when you look up all of this stuff. And, and, and also, I like how he has a saw blade in his head to contrast yeah. with the nails embedded in Hellraiser's head. And in general, like, it's definitely worth, like, looking up. Like, just go online looking up the monsters going on, like, the, just, like, a whole... I never would have thought of that. Like, I didn't know that guy had a name. <laughs> well, that, I, don't, I only know because, again, you look it up. Because, like, if you look right. on, like, the Cabin in the Woods wiki, you'll, you'll see all of these different monsters that are listed. And so that's where you get, get your official names, too. And, right. and even, like, a, and, and Fornicus. I like how... It's eerie how supernaturally still Fornicus is. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not, like, thrashing around, just, like, standing there with his little device in hand, just, just staring with his 
eyes, it's creepy eyes. Yeah, because like the werewolf pounds the glass, the ghost is like struggling against the glass. A lot of things are trying to get them while they're in the elevator, and yet yeah, he's just looking at them like, hey, what's up? <laughs> I could kill you if I wanted to. I gotta get through this glass. Um, and, and now Dana realizes that they made us choose how we die all that crap in the cellar. And oh, also, one of the monsters is a killer robot that looks like an, it's got this arachnid form, which has the nickname of the Mecha Scorpion. Yes. Well, Mecha Scorpion. I've always seen that, and I always wondered, like, is that supposed to be a Transformer reference? <laughs> Transformers aren't a horror movie, but I have no I idea what else he could be because he looks like a Transformer. I know, but and, see, okay, that's the thing. And also, I should mention before I forget, uh, Drew Goddard said a whistle activates. Just robots. A whistle. Oh, okay. But I don't know if I can think of a specific horror movie robot that it's based off of. Like, like there have been like evil robots, like the Terminator, you know, yeah. Howl. But like a specifically like a robot that's got all these any weapons or like just is ferocious like this in a horror movie or even like a thriller. I don't know. Or a sci-fi. I don't know. I can't yeah. think of a specific example. I've always just considered it a transformer for some <laughs> reason because it's so brightly colored. Yes, it's yellow. And see, see here's the thing: when I see it's yellow, I think of Wally. That's the first thing I think of. <laughs> Famous horror movie, Wally. Yes, Wally. Oh, so ferocious, so vicious. <laughs> and now Haley and Citizen are panicking. We need to take out Marty before Dana keeps order in line. And Wendy also informs from. So the prep team missed one of Marty's pastaches. So whatever he's smoking, it's like it's immunized him to all those shits. So they, they bring up, they, they call out the salt that Dana and Marty are in, they bring they bring the salt out the hallway, and there's a guy there who does hold him at gunpoint, but he gets distracted by the, by the zombie arm on the floor. Remember zombie body parts in the elevator. And Marty gets a chance to shove him, knock you know, knock his head. There's even some blood on the wall, like when the guy hit him. They must hit him into that wall really hard. Yeah. So Marty and Dana escape. Marty says, good work, zombie arm. And as the door is closed, we see the zombie arm crawl over and slowly laugh onto the guy's face. Mm -hmm. <gasps> so now Marty and Dana are in this big room now as they hear a voice. A voice coming from the director over the intercom. And she's telling them, like, you're part of something bigger. It's our task to placate the ancient ones as it's yours to be offered up to them. And the guards are coming in now to attack Dana and Marty as they head into the security room for refuge. And Dana's looking around and then she sees the system purge button. So she presses it, slams it down, unleashing all the monsters into the lab. Oh, it's such a good payoff whenever you get the elevator scene. And there's a scene where they're in the elevator and it pulls back. And like you said, you see the scorpion robot, you see the giant cobra, you see all these different monsters. It's such a good payoff here where she pushes the button and all the monsters come out and you get to see them just go to town on all these like foot soldier guys that are just there to be cannon fodder to these monsters. There's like a giant angry bat, a giant cobra, the, the guys that are supposed to be the strangers, an evil clown. I love that one of them's a unicorn. A unicorn! Oh my god, you that's right. Just somebody a bunch of times. <laughs> oh, this was uh, this was such a ride for me when I first saw this. Because I, you know, again, the third act. You mentioned the third act, like how much it built up to this, and I really enjoyed this on the first watch. Like again, as someone who hadn't seen much horror yet, so I was kind of like 
diving into it more. And so it was such a blast to be like, holy crap, all of these monsters just colliding together. Because I'm so used to be like, oh, you know, it's like one monster or a few monsters. But no, it's like yeah. all of these different monsters coming together. And again, it doesn't feel annoying. Like, I feel like it could have come off in a way where it's like, oh, it's the movie throwing member berries at you. Look at all of these, you know, look, isn't, isn't this lighting up your nostalgia? Your nostalgia light bulbs in your brain? But instead, it just comes off like this really cathartic payoff to the build-up and also like an homage to horror. Again, without feeling arrogance. Yeah, and positively. Just... I'm 100% on board with you there. That's definitely it. Now, the pure pandemonium everywhere. We get to see like all these different feeds as well. And on one of the feeds, I got to note how someone is puking up liquids into someone's poor face right into someone's mouth. There's like a monster doing that. Uh, there's also uh, the dolls. I, I have to call out the dolls because they are basically like the strangers-esque villains. And they have and the right. masks. Like, and it's funny because so the masks are definitely inspired by those types of characters. But there's something about these masks specifically that I really do love. Like, just the simplicity of them, the airiness of them. I don't know, just, I'm really into these masks specifically. I see why they're called the dolls, because the masks are modeled after porcelain dolls. I never really would have put in that, uh, uh, that name on them. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, they're basically just people, whereas everybody else in there is monsters of some sort. They're just people who come out to, to torture or kill. And we even see that. We, we, I think we see on the security camera feed, they do that. They, they tie up people and just set them on fire. Strangers, that's crap. <laughs> and then the head of security, Daniel, he ends up getting torn apart by a bunch of scarecrows and he blows himself up to kill them. Again, would have liked that to be fleshed out more, you know, have him do more as we said before. And then Hadley, he gets killed by a, a merman. He's just sitting like, on the floor, the merman crawls up to him. And I like how he's just like, he got that, oh, like, come on. And he gets killed and just like, the merman just like, laugh. like I feel like it lashes right onto his face or maybe his throat somewhere. Like, we don't get this full view, but somewhere in that, in, in that region. And the blood no, squirting we, up. Yeah, the blood comes squirting up yep. out of the blowhole. <laughs> so, you know, again, he got his wish in a way, you know, but as he said, not, not the way he wanted and then Citizen and Wendy, they're about to escape, but Wendy gets grabbed up by a giant tentacle from the ceiling and promptly killed. <laughs> and then Citizen climbs down, but then he gets stabbed by Dana after rushing around the corner. And as he's dying, Citizen tells her to kill him, as in kill Marty, keep the order in line. Now Dana and Marty are heading into the underground chamber where all of the, the carvings are, the stereotyped carvings. And Dana realizes it's all part of a ritual sacrifice. And then the director comes in, played by Sigourney Weaver. This is the second time in a couple years she had done something like this, because if I recall correctly, she plays like the, the hidden mystery overseer boss at the end of the movie, Paul, with... um. Oh, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. That Seth Rogen doing the voice. Yeah, she does the exact same spot at the end of Paul where she shows up as like the the government uh, oversight leader of that one too. So I thought that was kind of funny. Like, is this her new niche role? (laughs) That's right. I haven't seen Paul, but I remember hearing about that little cameo. So that's (laughs) a nice little connection. But hey, you know, I'm always glad to see her, even if it's just for a few minutes. Yeah, oh, definitely. She's a great actress. It's always great to see her in anything. Yeah. 
so then she comes in to explain the rules of this whole thing. Again, the, the stereotype, she's like, the whore must be killed first. And then we've got the athlete, the scholar, the fool, and just leaves the last to live or die, the virgin. And she says they're being punished for their use. And this is another a moment that I do like, is when Dana is like, me, virgin, and the director is like, we work with what we have. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like... Hard to find college virgins, I suppose. I don't know. And see, that's the thing. I feel like because I feel like that that pokes fun at not only like the horror stereotypes, but also I feel like it pokes fun at our like cultural image of virginity and you know the purity that's attached to that. And also like what what like what consists of being a virgin? Why is that so important? Because I'm I'm assuming in this sense it's like I'm assuming she probably. Like Dana probably hasn't had like rational sex, maybe, but just, like she's had intercourse in other ways. I'm assuming that's how she's a, a quote unquote version, you know. I don't know. I I just took it as like she's she's not a virgin in any way, but well, maybe anyway, she just had a lot of sex. I don't know. Yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a nice little moment. Again, it's very quick, but yeah. you know, I I appreciate it. You know, I appreciate it. And if this ritual doesn't work. Then the ancient ones will rise and take over Earth. They used to rule the planet, and they need to do this before the sun rises. So Dana does raise her gun at Marty, and she's about to sacrifice him. But then the werewolf comes up from behind her, and Marty sees it's coming, and it attacks her. And then she and the director are fighting for the gun, and then Marty gets it, shoots the werewolf several times, forcing it to flee. And then Marty and the director, they resume their fight, but then Patience comes in and swings her axe down onto, onto the director's head. And then Marty pushes them both into the pit below. <laughs> so now it's like, well, the, the room starts cracking. Dana and Marty are just sitting here, spending their final moments. Uh, and Dana, I like how Dana says, like, I don't think, I don't even think Kurt has a cousin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the cabin they went to was supposed to belong to Kurt's cousin, and she's like, I don't even think he has a cousin. <gasps> and she apologizes for almost shooting Marty, but he's like, eh, I totally get it. And he's, yeah. he gets out the weed, also, he's, you know, smoking it, just, you know, one last time before yeah. death. And he apologizes for letting her get attacked by a werewolf. And for ending the world. Yes, ending the world. And and by the way, Dana is covered in blood, by the way. It's like, it's covered. Well, between, between what the bear trap zombie did to her and then the werewolf attacking her, she's had a very rough night. <laughs> I know. I have no idea how she's still alive at this point. <laughs> just, I guess, toughness. It's like, oh, <laughs> surviving the nights. Oh. But then she says, humanity, it's time to give someone else a chance. And then she's like, I wish I could have seen them. And Marty is like, I know, that would have been a fun weekend. So it's just like, yep, you know, would have been fun, wouldn't it? To have seen the gods yeah. rise up. See the giant gods that are going to kill us all. But they won't get that because then a giant hand bursts up through the chamber, killing them, and then up through the cabin, and then slams down onto the screen. At which point, the credits start rolling. <laughs> it's a great ending to a movie, it really is. I know, and here, because I feel like typically you'd expect the ending to be more positive. Like, oh, you know, humanity's gonna survive this. Even if all the main characters die, humanity will get through this. But then it's like, oh no. So humanity <laughs> is, uh, is dying. Getting killed off. Yeah, humanity is done, though. And I'm curious, like, do you, 
like, do you feel like this is a movie may- maybe saying something about humanity? Like, being like, hey, humanity can be pretty shitty. What if we just let humanity die off, you know? Who knows? Uh, you know, I think I feel more and more like that every passing year. So maybe. <laughs> I think if I was in their position, I probably also would have been like, eh, we had a good run, but uh, we're kind of going downhill at this point. Maybe it is time for someone else to run with the ball. And and keep in mind, this movie did come out in 2011, so it's like things have only gotten more extreme in the yeah. 13, wait, 12 years since it came out. Yeah, 12 years. Yeah, and it was made in 2009, so yeah. it's like eight years since then. But yeah, it's, things have gone downhill just since then. <laughs> yeah, so it's Elon Musk and accents <laughs> and politics and all of the racism and transphobia and homophobia and oh dear and the next election oh boy yeah that's what i i wasn't going to say anything too divisive but maybe uh certain politicians have made things a little bit worse yeah yeah, yeah. <sighs> but yeah we, we have a worse society maybe it is time for the ancient evil gods to just come eradicate us and and start over oh <sighs> But <laughs> that is the cabin in the woods. Yay. I that I really I really enjoy this movie. I think it's one of my favorite movies. I'm a big fan. Definitely, yeah. Again, obviously, you know, we've been talking about this for a while and I still enjoy this so much. Even if it has its little flaws here and there, little ways to uh, flesh out the writing. Uh, like for example, I do I do what about, what about Holden? Because I feel like I feel like Holden actually could have been fleshed out just some more. What do you, what do you think about Holden? Yeah, he's kind of the only real characterization he gets is whenever he doesn't watch Dana take her shirt off. <laughs> and you see, like, oh, okay, he's a good guy, but that's really it. That's all the characterization you get. This movie is pretty much about Dana and Marty, and to a lesser degree, I guess Kurt is probably the third most important of the group. But it's it's basically the Dana and Marty story. Yeah, and again, again, George. Maybe, maybe, well, maybe a bit more characterization for George. But I feel like she gets, more, I feel like she still gets more characterization actually than Holden. Maybe. What do you think? Yeah, probably. Especially once they get to the cabin, she has a lot more to do. Like she has the scene where she makes out with the wolf, yeah. and that's fun. And she has the scene where they're out in the woods, and you can tell like she doesn't want to have sex in the woods but they keep like changing the circumstances and releasing pheromone gas and everything <laughs> to, to manipulate her into it yeah that's right i've got the mo- i've got to comment on that there's actually a moment where she pauses it's like mm-hmm. but then they but then yeah they, they affect the environment yeah because she keeps coming up with reasons why she doesn't want to she says she's chilly then she says it's too dark and so they they turn the heat up and then they turn the the intensity of the moon up so that it's brighter yep. yeah they keep trying to screw her over into giving up for uh, what the ancient gods want yeah again like you know it's like oh the writer is you know t- forcing the characters to do things they normally wouldn't do you know yeah <laughs> those choices oh, but... Yep, that's the movie. Do you, have, do, you have, do you have any final thoughts to offer on this? No, like I said, I'm a really big fan. It's in my top ten of all time. I think we hit on all the major points of the movie, so I think we did a pretty good job on it. Nice, nice. Yeah, I feel like I feel like I've uh, been offering up my thoughts and opinions on it as well. You know, again, still enjoy it. And you know, listeners, if you haven't seen this yet and you listen to our spoiler breakdown, hey, you know what? Uh, go watch it still. It's worth your time. You know. And actually, as of, as of this moment, it's on, yep, yeah, it, it's, it's still streaming on HBO Max at the moment. So, okay. Yeah, as of this recording. 
Well, if that's all we have to say about the cabinet of words, then I think we can segue onwards to good word. And this is the segment where each of us gets to recommend something, a book, a movie, a TV show, a podcast, music, anything we want. So, Stu, what is your good word? Uh, so the podcast I run is based off comic book movies, so I do have an affinity for comic books. And DC Comics has done something recently where they've rebranded and they brought out a bunch of miniseries and a bunch of books under the label Dawn of DC. And I don't know what that means because DC Comics has existed for almost 100 years, but they're call- they have this new label Dawn of DC. And those have typically been really good books. So if you're a comic fan who has written DC off because they've had a really rough decade until now they, with the new 52 and Rebirth and Doomsday Clock. A lot of things for DC hasn't gone right. Uh, now's a good time to get back into them. I'm specifically reading the Superboy Man of Tomorrow miniseries, and it's really making me happy. I'm glad to see that character getting written well again and just being important again. So yeah, the Dawn of DC line over at DC Comics is a a really good entry point for new readers or maybe lapsed readers who've kind of given up on DC. Get into that, find some characters or writers you like, and uh, get into that uh, that mini line they have going on. Nice, nice. Yeah, I I don't read I don't read comic books, but I take some time. You know, I like dive into comic books. You know. Usually I just focus on the movies and TV shows and stuff. But comic books? I watch a lot more movies than I read comics these days, but comics are what got me into pop culture when I was a kid. And through most of my life, honestly, I just, like I said, the the last maybe 10 years haven't been the best. But it seems like DC at least is on the ups. So I'm, I'm interested to see where they go after this Dawn of DC line. Nice, nice. And as for me, my good word is going to be Heartstopper on Netflix, specifically season two. I really have been enjoying, you know, I, I enjoyed Heartstopper a lot. I really loved season one. It was actually one of, my, one of my favorite TV shows of 2022. And season two continued to be a blast. It's just such a, it's such a, a heartwarming and cozy little show. Sure, you know, sometimes it can, it can get cringy just because of how, you know, overtly sweet it is, how snuggly it is. But I feel like sometimes, you know, if you want a, a, a queer show that is, again, just so warm, you know, it's very relaxing to watch, incredibly bingeable. The, the episodes are just like half hour long, and it's got some great uh, queer ups on there. And I'm, I'm glad that, you know, I'm, I'm glad that this is getting a lot of love. And the uh, webcomic and graphic novel that it's based off of is also great to read as well. Yeah, I've never read that comic, so I'll have to see if I can search that out and maybe uh, read the comic at least a little bit before I check out the uh, the series on, what is it, Netflix you Netflix, said, right? Netflix, Netflix. That's what I thought, okay. Definitely, and yeah, just to, yeah, again, just, yeah, really lovely to read, and just the way it handles the relationships, you know, and, and like, as, as, light, as light as it is, it does handle some pretty heavy subject matter, but it does a good job at balancing out all that heaviness, and making it feel like it, it meshes well with the overall sweet tone, you know, the warmth of it all. And the actors are great. I love the, I love the cast. It's a, a great cast yeah. as well. And it's funny, Olivia Coleman got to point her out because she is a part of the cast as well, and I love Olivia Coleman. I love Olivia Coleman too, yeah. The, the first movie I ever really took notice of her in was in Hot Fuzz, and I that's probably my favorite movie ever. I saw so. that recently, yep. Yeah. I loved it. Yep. 
Hot Fuzz is fantastic, yeah. So I, I like anybody from Hot Fuzz, so I've been a fan of hers ever since then. Nice, nice. Yeah, I saw The Lost Daughter. That was, her, that was the first movie that I ever saw her in, and I enjoyed that too. And just, uh, you know, I, I enjoy her work. Even The Mishmoor's vs. The Machines, which I recently did a podcast on, and she plays the AI villain in that, and she's created that vocal performance too. <gasps> well, Hot Stopper, that's my good word. Again, specifically season two, because that just dropped on Netflix. <gasps> All right. Yes. And now, I want to thank you so much, Stu, for coming on to my show, coming on to Two Sides Critic to break down The Cabin in the Woods. And now you get to promote yourself, promote your podcast. Where can people find you online? All right. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, like you said, you've been on my show. It hasn't come out yet, but I love talking to you. I think you're just a, a super fun dude. And I'm so happy to have had you on the show. And I'm happy you asked me to be on yours. And especially to talk Cabin in the Woods, which I'm obviously a huge fan of. So just uh, thank you so, so much for having me on. And then, yeah, if you want to find me, the podcast is The Stew World Order, where we review random comic book movies with our guests. We have super guests every episode. Uh, People, creative podcasters, writers, just really talented people come on the show that talk comic book movies with me. And uh, the website is swoproductions.com, where we have new articles every single weekday. We have some fiction on there. We have Pop-Tart reviews. We have movie reviews, TV reviews. Pretty much anything you might like in the pop culture realm, you'll find something at SWO Productions to read. So check that out. Nice. And as for my socials, you can find this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at two underscore sounds critic. You can follow my personal accounts on Twitter, GoodPods, StoryGraph, Letterboxd, and TikTok at Arthur underscore Ant18. You can find me on Goodreads at Arthur Howell. If you want to email me, you can reach me at email two sounds critic at yahoo.com. You can also check out my blog at two sounds critic.com. And make sure you subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, all of those services. And make sure you do the ratings interviews especially because they help to spread us to more listeners, you know, as any podcasters especially. And once again, thank you, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, once again, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it, Arthur. You're welcome. And until next time, stay healthy and stay strong.